I know our numbers. I know that they are magnitude better than a lot of startups out there that we benchmark ourselves against and this is at a global level. There's a part of me that's just like, honestly, it's your loss. Because we're going gangbusters. It's, yeah, I, we'll get there regardless of whether you want to be part of our journey or not. Welcome to the Startup Palette Show. When you think of startups, you think of Silicon Valley. We're going to venture beyond the valley and paint a picture of the startup ecosystem featuring diverse founders, investors and operators. We'll hear about their origin stories that shape them, the highlights, the lowlights, best practice and their visions for the future. Join me as we get a front seat to witness the phenomenal role of these pathbreakers. I'm your host, Preeti Mohan. Let's get started. Welcome to the Startup Palette Show. Today, we're joined by Dr. Angela Lim. She's a serial health tech entrepreneur and the founder of a fabulous company called Clearhead. So without further ado, welcome, Angela. Thanks for having me. So let's start with where you come from, how you got started. I'm originally from Malaysia. I migrated to New Zealand when I was 15 years old. Um, and then I did medical school um, in the University of Auckland in New Zealand. And then went into pediatrics training. I've actually been involved in health technology for about 15 years mostly at a governance level with the Ministry of Health in New Zealand, did some research at Harvard around inequitable health outcomes, and started Clearhead five years ago as a way of creating the type of company that I want to see exist in the world, and yeah, it's been a fun journey so far. (laughs) That's how the best ideas start, right? Seeing something come to life that you want to see exist in the world. Let's talk about your world in those early years. What was it like growing up in Malaysia? It was very much very academic focus and I would just wake up at 4 a.m. every day and I would take the school bus to Singapore and I won't get home till about 7 or 8 p.m. in the night and yeah and so you kind of make all your friends on the school bus and and the weekends is filled with tuition or extra classes and so it's extra classes on math, on Mandarin, on every single subject you could think of. Growing up in Asia was very much just all all I really focused on was really just studying. Did you always want to get into medicine? Uh, No. (laughs) The truth is I didn't really know what I wanted to. I'm the first doctor in my family, both immediate and extended. And yeah, my family background is mainly entrepreneurs and a lot of them sort of grew up in what I would consider abject poverty. You know, they had one meal a day, seven of them slept in one room and and that was my mom's generation and all of them sort of were able to become self-made billionaires in their own way, even though they, most of them also just kind of did up to primary school. So that was the, ba- you know, sort of family background that I had. Um, what was really interesting was I kind of stayed away from business because just like I thought that like human politics in the business world was like really off-putting and I was like I don't want to have that in my life and so I was always really passionate about science especially around the brain and so my first degree was actually in neuroscience. We sort of did research and you know it's 15 years ago around sort of stem cell research. It was really fun and exciting but I kind of felt like being in the laboratory was kind of boring for me. So is that what brought you full cycle back to entrepreneurship? I think like there are two types of <laughs> Two types of people, right? One who kind of really embrace what their family background is and one who run away from it and rebel against it. And I think I, I ran away from it for the first, first early days of my 
I guess my young adulthood and and then I think as I sort of figured out what it is that I was good at, what it is I was passionate about, it sort of led me back to entrepreneurship. Not by design, just kind of by sort of saying yes to the next thing and, and then, you know, as you as you look backwards the the dots somehow connect. Do you think you took lessons from your family or your parents when it comes to entrepreneurship? I was that precocious kid that, like, I would, you know, I remember, like, at eight years old, I would, I would insist on sitting at the adults' table and I would listen to them talk about politics, about business. So, the reason I didn't study business in university was it felt, it was felt very intuitive. It felt just like something that I could uh, just pick up by myself and not have to do a formal education on. So, I think that a lot of the maybe in sort of instinctive decisions was probably partially through sort of the subconscious osmosis when I was younger. But I I would say that a lot of the skills that make me um, a good leader in running a a product company, essentially what we're solving the problem on is that there is a huge demand for mental health support and there's not enough people to provide it to poor outcomes at least long wait times and so we designed using AI an ability to have access to care 24-7 and it's personalized to you it's scalable um, and so there are a few things that I've learned through being a doctor that that helps me be a good leader in, in running this company one is the ability to kind of really sit in the space and understand um, what is the problem you know we would talk to all these people and, and just listen you know they'll tell us their whole patient journey and how horrific it is, and we would we would be able to start kind of recognizing that okay, uh, there's a consistent theme here. Um, if we fundamentally address the barrier around that there's a shortage in the workforce by using AI to augment the workforce, we'll address this from first principle. So that was one, you know, being able to understand the problem in an empathetic way. Then from being a, a leader perspective, you know, being able to kind of recognize that. When you work in the health system, you work as a team. It's very much, you know, me as a doctor, I play the role in the one component of the patient's care, but the nurses do their bit, the social workers do their bit, the occupational therapists do their bit, the radiologists do their bit. You know, everybody brings with them their specialization, but if you truly work together, then the patient has the best outcome. So when I think about building the company and all the different functions, again, it was taking that cross disciplinary approach, recognizing that I don't want to be the smartest person in the room, but how can I make sure who's the best person to think about product, who's the best person to think about marketing and and bring them together. So I think, yeah, I think that not explicitly my family background, but just I think more explicitly the stuff that I've learned through being a doctor. Teamwork is truly something that needs to exist everywhere, but particularly in healthcare. How was it? putting together a team for a startup and getting everyone to believe and join your vision? <laughs> we're four and a half years old now. The first two and a half years, we were a team of four. There was me, my co-founder, Michael Connolly, who's a software engineer. And then we hired you know, a machine learning engineer and a front-end engineer. So it's like basically four of us for the first two and a half years. During that first period of Clearhead, what we were learning to do was try to find that product market fit, you know, really understanding, well, yes, mental health and the ability to access good support is a problem that's huge and, and universal, 
But what are the solutions already in place, right? And and how can we not reinvent the wheel? I mean, and really address the gap in the market. So it took us two years really to get to get to that point. And so it's funny now because you know it's pretty much fifty-fifty now in terms of the technical team versus the non-technical team. So I think there's about eight people on the non-technical team. And I was just reflecting on it today through just when we were talking with one of my employees. Is it used to all be just me because he was saying like one of the things that has surprised him, having he he's he's been an intern at our our, our company, and I asked him this question. You know what one surprising thing you've learned being an intern here. And he was like, probably the fact that you are, you know, everything that's going on in the company when there's so much going on. And I was like, yeah, it's probably because for the first two and a half years I had to do everything, so I always knew where the pain is. And therefore, like when you know what the pain is, you also know how to hire for the right people who will be able to solve that that pain point that you identify. So I really advocate for people to kind of, especially as founders, to really do as much of the functions as possible because then you know what it is that you. You need to solve, and you know then to to explicitly hire for people who would be good at solving those things. How do you like manage being hands on versus suddenly having to be hands off when your team grows? <laughs> yeah, I think I'm always hands on. I just I require less time with the actual depth. I think that again, when you think about the fact that our company is very much. A very innovative company, and and one of the key factors of successful innovative companies is collaboration, and that's one of our five values at Clearhaven. And so, I'm still hands-on in the sense that, like, you know, I have a good sense about what's going on in marketing, what's going on in product, what's going on in sales, what's going on in sort of engineering, and how we are all sort of working together in one cohesive team. But I don't, for example, and let maybe just to give a very simple example. I used to be able to provide presentations to one of our, to our clients, and I would be the person that would go onto the academic literature. I would research the the literature, and I would create the presentation, and then I would give the presentation, and I would follow up with them, and you know all that kind of stuff. And now, you know, I might just do the presentation, but you know, my team will do the research. My team will create the presentation. So that's kind of how I'm still hands on, but you delegate. The pieces of work out, and that's really important. I read that in one year you went from barely being known to getting fifteen percent market share and having twenty staff. Tell us about that journey. How did that scale up happen? So, you know, every so I I think that we're in the third phase of the company. So the first phase I alluded to, which is finding product market fit, that bit is really challenging in the context that. Um, that's the bit that like nobody can really help you with. It, it's the bit that is kind of every day. Keep talking to users, keep pitching, and 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 then finally you'll get a customer that wants to buy. And and once you start getting consistently customers wanting to buy, you're like, okay, cool. I've probably unlocked a bit of product. So that that took us about two. Before we got to that point, and、um, at least seven or eight iterations. Yeah, like, and we're talking like full overhaul, like.、Um, We were never precious about the fact that we've built all these things, and we're like, "Yep, we've learned from it, but it's not fit for purpose. Scrap it." We, I mean, at one point we had we built a whole tally house system. We scrapped it all out. Like that's like the level of like, well, we'll probably build it back in,、um, but it's like right now,、um, what for what it was built, it wasn't quite fit for purpose, so we scrapped it out. So, so yeah, so we that was the first phase. 
Then the second phase was around scaling. As you, your question, which is one of the things that kind of I learned was like, when you're successful, it's even more like you're being punched in the face because everything's breaking. There's constantly not enough people to help with, with fixing problems and all that kind of stuff. So that was really challenging. And, and so we're now in the third phase, which is very much, okay, we've, we've built the foundation of how to scale up and support people really quickly. Um, and now what does that mean to sort of really uh, cut through the noise at a global scale? So that's kind of the third phase that we're entering. And um, one of the challenges that we face when we sort of had rapid growth was around sort of, you know, making sure that we maintain the quality standards that we promise. So I guess essentially what we sort of, what what allowed us to scale that quickly was it was just that level of word of mouth. You know, we built a really great product. We had such a high quality response. And, and then so people kept telling other people. And so it, it really felt like one day it felt like, nothing was happening and then the dam just opened and then literally every single day like there was one day where every single day I was sending out three contracts a day it was just insane and so I think that if you truly understand the problem you're solving and you're you're doing a high quality product that will be how you sort of grow and I, I think that so much of startups is using other proxies how much money have you raised how many team members do you have? And or like how much, you know, like money have you spent on ads so that you have what we call fake growth? And most of that growth that we've we've had was was just, you know, word of mouth. We actually barely spent any money on marketing and then sales. So yeah, so I think that, that would be my two cents. It's like just come back to the basics. What's the problem you're solving? What's the product you're building? How does it solve the problem? How does it do it ten times better than anyone else? And, and it'll feel for a while like nothing's happening and then one day the demo will just break. Amazing. I mean, I think these are words for every entrepreneur to live by, like get to the basics. And that true product market fit is when customers keep coming back to you. Yeah, I mean, we had all this growth and I've only ever had one customer leave. So that gives you a sense as well. Like Everyone's kind of stayed with us all these years as well, which has been pretty cool. Everyone would kill for those churn rates. Thanks. that's amazing speaking of funding like how easy or difficult was it to raise investment along this process it's been painful if I'm honest we we were really lucky so we had one angel investor right from day one of of the company so before we built anything all we had was a business plan on a piece of paper we had an angel investor who really saw something in us and he just put in seven figures and that kept us going for a few years. He, he's a professional investor and he constantly say that, you know, we're his top three startup and he like, never worries about us. And he's always very, like, impressed how we've made the dollar stretch as long as we have. Um, but, yeah, you know, as we sort of move into this next phase around global expansion, as you can imagine, it would be very expensive. So I'm currently capital raising. It's been an interesting journey. We've gotten with some of the top VCs right to the final stages and we sort of didn't get things across the line. And when you ask them, you know, what, why is that? And it's very much like, oh, you know, it's, we still don't have enough conviction or like we still need you to prove this. And, and you know, there, there comes to a point where it's very chicken and egg and a part of me does think about, well, if I was 
just a typical white guy with a, that same, you know, like, same level of, yeah, whether that same level of, like, constantly here's another hoop to jump, here's another thing you have to prove would exist. I think, for me, I try not to be resentful about it. I, I think about it in the sense that what's our ambition, what's our vision? Well, we want to be the number one global mental health brand. At the moment, there isn't one. And so, you know, how hard would it be to be that? And so, for me, every sort of setback that we get, whether through customers or investors, we see it as a way in which we're growing as a company, learning things. So, yeah, I, I, long story short is, there is definitely a gender and potentially even a ethnicity bias that exists from a capital raising perspective. I know our numbers. I know that they are magnitude better than a lot of startups out there that we benchmark ourselves against. And this is at a global level, not just here in New Zealand or here in Australia. And, and I, you know, there's a part of me that's just like, honestly, it's your loss because we're going gang buses. It's, yeah, I... We'll get there regardless of whether you want to be part of our journey or not. You know, what really stands out to me is that how that first investment, you were able to stretch it and get such great returns on it. And yet still that belief to follow on for others isn't there. And potentially because of race, gender, ethnicity, like gut-wrenching actually. Thinking about it, what do you think the ecosystem needs to do to change this? Yeah. A part of me just thinks about, like, if we struggle, I can't even imagine every other startup that's out there trying to raise. I was recently listening to this podcast episode from someone who just recently published a Harvard Business Review paper. And it talked about, basically, women founders who raise from uh, mainly women investors are two times less likely to get follow-on capital. And a part of that is because consciously or subconsciously, people kind of take the perception that, oh, this founder is not as good. And the only reason they were able to raise money initially was because they appealed to these gender exception rules. So along... Along those lines, in medical school, we also had affirmative action for those who are of minority status, like those of indigenous background. And again, I remembered, actually, when I was applying to medical school, people would make such derogatory comments about people who got accepted through the affirmative action program. But then when you get into medical school, you listen to their stories, and you're like, oh my goodness, if I had to work part-time, support my family, you know, you know, feed a family of five, on top of that, study and get the best grades possible to get to like the, the less than 10% that get into medical school. I don't know if I could do it. You know, I got to spend all my time just doing it for myself. I didn't have to worry about my family, you know, working and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think, I think there is a role for affirmative action in terms of ensuring that people get through the door. I think otherwise the uh, the unconscious or conscious bias will continue to perpetuate. So I think there is an element of that. I think the second thing is just being able to have an ability to understand how the bias exists. So, for example, if an investor asks me a question of like, well, if you raise all this money and 
you do a postmortem. Uh, what will the postmortem say about like, why you you were not successful in in scaling up your ambition? That was the question I got asked, and so I answered the question. Well, I think X Y Z. This is the only reason I think why it would it would fail, and and it was really nice because one of the she was a female investor and she said that is that's a very risk or prevention type of question. You should ask one that is much more promotional. So let's ask the question again in terms of like. If you were successful with, after you've raised all this money, what would success look like? And so I think it's just having people be very conscious about how the questions they ask create negative lens um, around the decision making, and ensure that there are people championing and listening around how biases exist in the very simple ways in which we ask questions. Um, so I think those are the two things I would suggest. Just really one, have programs where people could at least get to the door. And this is broadly in the affirmative action perspective in the context that less than 3% of VC funding go to women. And then the second is around making sure that there's some level of training around people recognizing how the questions they ask, how the decisions they make, how do you make sure that you're deliberately not having unconscious bias filter through. Actually, these risk-based questions for women is very commonplace. If you don't have that investor there call them out, how as a founder would you manage that conversation with a potential investor? Yeah, so this is a really cool TED talk that I would recommend any sort of founder. But it's for you as the individual to be aware that you've been asked a risk prevention type of question. And then if you reframe the risk prevention question as if the question was asked in a promotional way, and you answer it in a promotional way, you're actually more likely to get funding than than the than if you were asked, if you were just responding in, in the same lens as the question was asked. So in the context that until we are able to change the ecosystem and set in place more systemic frameworks, it still requires a lot of the individual to be the person that's resilient. And I think if we take a step back and, and use another analogy in the context of resilience, often we think about resilience in the context that that individual has to have agency to stay well. And in, the, in, in sort of all the the difficulties and uncertainty of the world. And what we know, for example, that true resilience is done in an ecosystem. So it's ensuring that the organizations you're part of, the support networks you're part of, all of those things form part of what will create resilience for the individual. But in the absence of all of that, it just means more of that onus is on that individual. And for some individuals, they are able to be resilient. Um, they have enough within, and they might be able to learn fast enough but then some people we will fall through the cracks because of that, and we will. And these are the same philosophies that will occur in, in capital raising. There will be lots of really great founders out there who will never get funded, and it's not because the ideas were not great. It was just because the biases existed that meant that they were not able to kind of push through. Let's talk about a world where Clearhead is a unicorn. What comes next for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that I find quite interesting is that the startup world has become something that has a lot of hype associated with it. And I think with the new economic climate, that might change a little bit where it's actually harder now to be an entrepreneur. And so you won't maybe have any people try sort of dabbling in it as, as you would otherwise in the good times. So being a unicorn... It's not, you know, what we kind of benchmark ourselves against of what we're trying to achieve. 
I think for me, what would success look like in ten years? It would be the fact that, like I said, we are that go-to brand. You know, whenever someone is not feeling great mentally, when whenever they kind of want to be a higher-performing individual and thrive and flourish in their craft, maybe it's them wanting to find balance in their life and and they're trying to figure out how much they commit to their their family versus their work and their ambition. So the place that they go will always be clear-headed. So I think if we continue to be top of mind for people, we continue to solve their problems, we continue to achieve outcomes. Let me share some outcomes with you. So, for example, the statistics on counseling is in terms of satisfaction rate is about 46%. So it's equivalent to leaving things to chance. On Clearhead, it's 97.7%. We systematically design out why the therapy would not be effective and kind of say, well, it's all about the matching, so how could we get that right? We reduce the wait time down from the public wait list of six months to two days. And we've done that in the context of, you know, improving capacity that was previously hidden through, again, using technology and unlocking real-time availability. And, and all of these things, we want to make sure we continue to stand by as we scale globally. So, so that's something that is very top of mind for me, you know, as, as all that growth happens and all that we, we, we continue to remember why we do what we do and, What's really interesting for me is we, we, we get feedback like in the time it takes for someone to come onto Clearhead, find someone that would help them, be seen by that person, they're still waiting for a competitive product to kind of even get back to them. So that's the level of difference in quality of, of care that we provide. And as you grow, how do you continue to innovate while staying true to your customers? When you take investor money you have to be really conscious of this you sort of get to a point you're trying to solve this problem you build a product that solves this problem and there's some really great traction investors get excited they said that's great here's some money do more of that and you can very easily just keep doing the same thing because it worked for you for a while but if you don't keep your eye on like what's next then you're going to eventually be out completed by the next the next thing that comes and and so I think for us you know with around the question of like how do you stay innovative the first is like we continue to always keep asking our customers are we solving your problem what what other problems do you have that we're not solving how do we continue to build adjacency around that and then I think the fact that like I said before one of the number one factors of success for innovation is collaboration and true collaboration where people feel psychologically safe to share their ideas, feel that they are empowered and have agency to take control and take ownership of the work, have the ability to have visibility of what they do and how that fits into the bigger picture. And so it's for the leaders to constantly be communicating that, have people who are constantly one step ahead in the research necessarily you know, like looking at your competitors because if you overly focus and index on that, you'll end up just building a a version of the competitor. No, it's still being very clear around what's the problem we're solving, how do we measure that impact, and if that is constantly tracking in the right direction, then you know you're innovating um, in the product. So that would be sort of my two cents on that. And that makes a lot of sense. Another thing that I often hear from investors is, especially if, if they want companies to scale globally, they expect founders to relocate and move internationally. And sometimes for women, it's a lot harder than for men. What are your thoughts on that 
Have you been told that by any investors? I agree. As we sort of begin our global expansion, I've been the one that's been traveling around. I was constantly in Australia, and then I was in Canada, and I was in the US. And there is no substitute for being on the ground to very quickly getting traction. So, to answer your question, yes, I think that there is benefit for the founders to to do that. And I think for all your female listeners, I'm going to be really honest. It requires sacrifice. I have put my own personal life on hold for me, for basically the last five years. In the context that I put the business first, I had very clearly indicated to my team that you know most likely next month I'll move to Australia for the next six months, and I'll move to Canada for the next couple of years. Now I'll move to US after that. I am actively choosing to do what's best for the business in order to scale our impact. But I can do it because I. Made choices in my life where I'm, I don't have the commitments like children, like a husband, that would stop me from doing that. So, it is not surprising that it is harder for female founders to go the distance because you get to a certain point where there are sacrifices that are asked of you, and you have to then ask yourself if that's something that you want. It's a very conscious choice, and and I want to be very transparent with your your female listeners because I don't want people to think that I have it all because I don't. I I make very active choice to to sacrifice parts of my life because this is this is the this is the season of my life right now that I'm dedicating to. So it does feel like a real sacrifice, or is it a way up of an option? Do I look at my friends and wish that I have some of the stability that they do in terms of relationships, in terms of just like maybe not so much the crazy emotional ups and downs that comes from running a business and having all that responsibility, both for the employees I I hire as well as the people that get access to our support services. Yeah. There are times where I wish the grass was. I I do see the grass is greener. And in an ideal world, I would like to have it all. Um, so yes, it is a real sacrifice, is the way I would see it. Um, and there are there are moments where I would ask myself, do I still want to do this? And uh, there are moments where there is some resentment. And But those moments are few and far between compared to the moments where I feel incredible satisfaction of the fact that we've been able to do things that people say was impossible to kind of make the impact. You know, we can have, which is what happened. The government comes to us one day and just like, we want you to supply um, therapy support to all everyone in New Zealand who's been affected by the floods and cyclone. Can you do it? We're like, yes. Like, you know, because we've set up systems that makes it possible, and so. Versus obviously a lot of times what you hear in the media is like oh yeah the government promises all these grants but then you never see it for three months later and so by by, by them knowing us for our reputation being able to kind of work with them to get timely support so those are those are the moments which I anchor my 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 on the days where I feel shit <laughs> basically that I'm like okay well but this is why I'm doing it for because if I don't do it who else will and you know my team is. It's beautiful. These are beautiful human beings that give me so much joy, and so, in many ways, they are like my children. They are my stability that that I have. That's just different, you know. And it's just all about reframing it. 
That's beautiful. You've got a lot on your shoulders. How do you manage your own mental health? Yeah, I really think that it's very important to be self-aware of what's going on. Don't let it fester. You might start to feel resentful about whatever situation you're in and because it is hard and there are sacrifices. But if you don't recognize that you're feeling like that, then you're not going to do things to kind of contain it or, or explore it. So I, I spend a lot of time being very reflective of how I'm feeling. And I journal, I meditate every day, I go for a run a couple of times a week at least. I see my friends at least a couple of times a week. So I do a lot of the things that are just very basic stuff that anchors and anchors me in the real world outside of the bubble that I, I can be in. And I think when you take a step back and remind yourself that the things that happen to you, not all of it is in your control and it's not the world trying to target you. Um, if you listen to how other people live their lives, you're more likely to be able to kind of put a sense of perspective of what's going on. And so that's how I, I stay resilient on the ups and down days. And then when I'm not feeling so good, it's totally okay that I just stay in bed for a whole day and just watch Netflix and just let my team know I'm like not feeling great. And so I think it's not trying to say that I'm superhuman and I never feel bad, but it's just that I'm aware when I'm feeling bad and I, I, I don't I don't let it drag on. I kind of time box it and I often say like, okay, sure, I've got some bad news. I'm going to let myself feel sad for the rest of the day. Tomorrow's another day. That's kind of the way I think about it. I think that's so important to give yourself that time and space to go through the emotions and actually reflect on it and come out the other side. Do you have a support network when it comes to business? Yeah, I my family has been the most supportive through through everything, and so I'm grateful for that. There's a cohort of female founders that I'm part of, uh, and it's been really nice to kind of just know that sometimes when you're going through all these struggles, whether it's about employees, whether it's about customers, you hear how all these other female founders who are running very different businesses and other verticals going through something similar, and so you kind of work through it together. And of of course, I also have friends who are male founders who have also been really great in terms of like, they're often maybe one step ahead of me. And so it's been really nice to kind of hear from them like, okay, well, here's what I'm going through. And so they kind of know what it is that I'm going through. They've just gone through it. And so they can kind of give really good advice. Yeah. And then finally, I just have like really amazing expert advisors that have been really supportive in providing the expertise. And yeah, I... I'm incredibly grateful. The success of Clearhead is never on the shoulder of my own, but it's a collective effort from everybody else who's provided us the goodwill in the journey. And I wish Clearhead, like, so much more success. I think it's going to be amazing, and what you're doing is so impactful. Before we finish up, one question I love to ask is, how much of your life do you feel you've created, curated, or chanced upon? Mm. <laughs> uh, probably a combination. I definitely have had a lot of no's in my life where doors have been shut and my philosophy has been if the door is shut, fine, look for the window. So I've created opportunities for myself that 
you know, even simple things like, you know, getting to Harvard and stuff like that. It's not necessarily through the traditional routes. Um, so there's, like, I'd say maybe, like, I don't know, 40% of my life is just sheer, sheer, like, pig-headedness and, and pushing through things and making things happen. And probably another 30% is just, you know, being in the right place at the right time and not being afraid to say yes. So that's the chance component. And then, yeah, 20%, I guess, is I'm going to interpret curated in the context of, like, knowing when to say no and, and knowing when to, to kind of say, okay, well, this doesn't add value in my life anymore or I can't really make an impact here anymore and to very deliberately say yes and no to opportunities that come your way. Especially as you get more successful, you'll be surprised. Everybody will try and knock on your door. I always try and give time at least for first meeting because I know how many people have given me time for, th- for my first meeting with them. So I'll always do that much at least, but in terms of ongoing commitment, I'm very ruthless around how I spent my time and where I spent my time. It's incredible. Thank you so much, Angela, for um, being on the Startup Palette Show. Honestly, what an inspiration you are to so many women. And... Um, this was such a raw and honest talk. Um, really, really appreciated it, and I'm sure everyone listening um, will too. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Startup Power Show. If you had a blast listening to this episode, come on board and join our incredible cheer squad. Spread the startup love by sharing the episode with your friends, leave us a review, or drop us your valuable feedback, comments, or burning questions. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll shine the spotlight on another startup superstar. I'm Preeti Mohan and I look forward to seeing you next time.